Well, it's almost here. Almost here. So many have been eagerly waiting, expecting, longing for the day. Even some of you here in this room, folks have been shopping and preparing parties and decorating. Some folks have planned out their entire day from sunup to sundown. They know exactly what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat. And I'm not talking about Christmas. No, I'm talking about the day this week when the new Star Wars movie comes out. (laughs) You know, sadly, millions of folks will be enthralled and nothing against Star Wars story and movies. But millions of folks are going to be enthralled with the continuing saga of the fictional epic tale of intergalactic war and yet be tragically ignorant or even worse, tragically apathetic of the true epic tale of human history. The true story of human history from the Word of God, from the Scriptures, is astounding. It defies our ability, of the ability of our minds to comprehend it. And it amazes every time we take the time to ponder it, to dig in. For here in the Scriptures, in the epic tale of humanity, what we discover is a tale that is filled with a glorious beginning and a tragic failure and loss and suspense and promise and love and friendship and intrigue and betrayal and violence and murder and wars and kings and conquests and empires and prophecies and heroes and and zeros and losers and victorious underdogs and a dramatic conclusion and a glorious eternal future. All that and so much more is here in the real life epic tale of the Word of God. Over the past 12 weeks, we have been looking at simply one chapter in this epic tale. The life of Abraham, following Abraham in his journey of faith, his journey of following God's promise. Now we're entering the Advent season, the time where we anticipate and where we celebrate the the birth of Jesus Christ, the arrival of the Messiah. It is a tall peak. It's a high mountain in this epic tale. We just sang the Christmas carol, the first Noel. By the way, I wonder how many of you know what a Noel is anyway. Sing it a lot. The Noel, the the first news of the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, as the angels announced to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The first news of the birth of the Messiah. The first Christmas song. The first Noel. Born is the King. 
But we could say that, and we might say that the first Noel, or maybe the first first Noel, actually we find back in Genesis chapter 3. I encourage you to turn there today. The bulletin actually has the title as the first Noel. It's actually the first first Noel. And the passage we're going to look at, Genesis 3, its roots are back there, all the way back long, long ago, far, far away on earth. (laughs) 4,000 years or so before the first Christmas, Genesis chapter 3. Probably the saddest chapter in all of the Bible. For in the two chapters before, as God creates the heavens and the earth, and He creates man and puts man in the earth, the world was perfect. There was no sadness. There was no sickness. There was no violence, no war, no death, no final exams. Literally everything was perfect. Even people were perfect. Then came the serpent, Satan, who succeeded in tempting Eve into sin and Adam followed willingly along. And thus the whole of humanity plunged into sin and all the entire of creation fell under the curse of sin and death. It was arguably Satan's biggest and grandest moment since he rebelled against God. Satan, the most beautiful, the highest of all of God's creation, who thought in his heart, I'm pretty good, and he decided he would be like God. Decided to exalt himself above God. And he led a rebellion of angels. And then he comes sometime after God has created everything and man, and Satan steps into the picture and tempts Eve. And Satan, in his desire to supplant and to usurp God's position, has destroyed God's creation And in effect, He has murdered the human race. The people God created and loved. Now here in Genesis 3 and in verse 15, God is beginning to pronounce the curses first with the serpent and then He moves on to Eve and Adam. But we're only going to look at one verse this morning. And that will be more than we can handle in the time we have. This verse, verse 15, the great preacher Charles Simeon called this verse the the sum and the summary of all of the Scriptures. For hundreds of years, theologians have labeled this one verse the Proto-Evangelium, or the word in Greek is the Proto-Evangelion. Literally what that means is the first gospel, the first Evangel, the first good news. 
here on the worst day of human history, God tucks in with His grace, He tucks in some good news even amid the curses that He is pronouncing. We're going to simply focus as we look at this one verse. Matter of fact, let me read it. And then I'm going to focus on our attention on just three words to try to help us unpack some of the wonder of this one little verse. Genesis 3, verse 15. God is speaking, and He's speaking to the serpent. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. First word I want us to notice in this verse this morning is the word enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, I think this means more than just that women will hate snakes. Though most women I know hate them with a passion. I'm from Texas and I love this bumper sticker. Texas women shoot their own snakes. (laughs) If my wife had had a gun, she probably would have, but it usually fell on me to kill the snakes we found. But I grew up in West Texas and the theory out there was the only good snake was a dead snake. And you'd, you'd go around out in West Texas, and I don't know if it's everywhere out West, but I know out in West Texas you'd see dead rattlesnakes hanging on the barbed wire fences. I don't know who it was supposed to scare off, if that was supposed to scare off the snakes or somebody else, but probably to try to scare off northerners. But most of us don't like snakes very much. But I think this means more than just where it says, I'll put enmity between you, serpent and the woman. And God has moved past the serpent into Satan who is behind all of this. And God is giving a declaration of war, of hostility between woman and Satan. You see, Satan, I think, is purely conjecture. I don't know what he feels, but I had a feeling that he was thinking that he possibly had succeeded in destroying God's sovereign plan, in destroying God's sovereign control as he undid God's work in humanity. Perhaps he had felt that he had achieved not only taking over God's authority, but perhaps he had won over the human's in getting them to side with Him and against God. That just maybe He actually has achieved His goal. And He has made Himself like God, taking His place, taking God down and lifting Himself up. And God's words here, at the very least, are uh, not so fast, Satan. See, I think perhaps what God is saying here is that Eve has fallen, but she hasn't gone over to your side, Satan. She won't love you. She won't trust you. Rather, she will hate you. 
Every day that she and Adam lived outside of the Garden of Eden, outside of the wonderful place of perfection, and now live in this broken, fallen, messed up world every single day instead of loving Satan, she will remember very intensely to hate Satan. I note as God says this that He makes it very clear that He is in charge. Everything He says here is not, Satan, let's sit down and negotiate now that you have messed up my plans. This is all declaration. And He doesn't say, I'm going to try to get the woman on my side. God says, I will put it in her. I will put enmity in her. What God is saying very clearly is that God will see to it. God is in charge. Satan will not have free reign in humanity nor free reign on earth. See, God is sovereign. God was not surprised. When Satan stepped onto earth and when he... When he came into the garden, he didn't sneak in and somehow God missed it. God was busy doing something else and God didn't see Satan go in. When Adam and Eve fell, God didn't go, Oh no, what am I going to do now? Rather, God knew it all along. Because God is sovereign, He's in control. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He knows everything. Not only what has happened in the past, but what will happen in the future. And I know all this because the Word of God says so. And anyone who thinks that somehow that God was surprised by this has not read the Scriptures. I'll give you three quick Scriptures you can look at. Here's one. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He, God, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the world was formed before the world was made, God chose to save you in Christ. Peter says it over in, in his little letter. He says, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and He was chosen. Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was chosen to be the sacrifice, the Savior before the world was ever made. In the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus was the Lamb who was slain from the foundation or from the creation of the world. It was no surprise when this happened because before the world was ever made, God knew that there would be sin. He knew that Adam and Eve would fall. He knew there would be a need to be a Savior. And it was all set up before anything was made. Satan did not usurp God's authority. He may have thought he did, but it was all set up long before. So there's some comforting truth in this and something that you and I can cling to every day of our life. And that is this reality that Satan cannot go in his scheming where God has not already allowed in his sovereignty. See, some of you are worriers. Some of you are fretters. You tend to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. You tend to worry about, does God know what's going on in my life right now? 
And does God know what's going to happen tomorrow? Absolutely. And if He knows what's happening, can God take care of my problems? Absolutely, because God is sovereign. He is in control. And there is not anything that Satan can do. There is not anything that you can do. There is not anything that anyone can do. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, that can separate us from the love of God. That can separate us from the power of God. That can separate us from His work and His plan in our life. Is that not good news? Satan cannot go in his scheming where God has not already allowed in His sovereignty. Second word I want us to note in this little verse is this little word seed. Or in some of your Bibles it may read offspring. This enmity that God is setting up between Eve and Satan is going to extend past them. This enmity, this war will extend to the woman's seed and to Satan's seed. To Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And I don't think he's talking here about physical seed, physical offspring. Because for one thing, Satan is a spiritual being, not a physical being. Satan isn't going around giving birth to lots of little Satans or little demons. Satan's seed here is speaking spiritually of humans, people who will align themselves with Satan. And the seed of the woman here is picturing those who will align themselves with God, even as Eve and even as Adam, after their sin, they go back to God, not to Satan. And there is going to be a conflict here, a division between people and a conflict between those who will align themselves to follow God and those who are following Satan. The great Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, many of you have read his writings, writes of two humanities that arise after the fall. From this time on, he writes, in the flow of human history, there are two humanities. The one humanity that says there is no God or makes God in its own imagination or tries to come to God in its own way. The other humanity comes to the true God in God's way. And there is no middle ground. He's saying, and rightly so, biblically so, that that all of humanity fits into one of these two streams coming from this moment at the Garden of Eden. There will be a divide and everyone will either be of the seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan, who is coming to God in their own way or is coming to God in their own, of a, a God of their own imagination or who denies that there is a God at all. And all of that is in the realm of Satan's seed and there are those who come to the one true God in His way. There is no middle ground. And so this verse sets the stage for the whole drama of human history as the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have opposed each other continuously ever since across the pages of Scripture. You see it all through and through the centuries and into our own day and to this present hour. There's a conflict raging. The third word in this verse that we need to see is this word, strike.
It says that He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. There are blows that are exchanged. Now, if you're reading in the New International Version translation, it uses the word crush for He and it uses the word strike for the serpent. Once you understand in the original, those are the very same word. It's the same word both places. And other translations, the ESV, the, the King James, the um, New, New American Standard, they use the same word in both places. And, and uh, I like the word strike, I think, is used in the ESV. I like the Net Bible, which uses the word attack. He will attack your head and you will attack His heel. The point is this, though. There's a difference between a head strike and a heel strike. And that's why the NIV uses the two different translations because the result is very different. The striking of the head is a crushing blow and a death blow. And the striking of the heel, it's a crushing blow to the heel, but it hurts. It debilitates, but it doesn't. It's not deadly. Blows are exchanged. And Satan loses. Satan is crushed. His head is crushed. And that's one, one reason this is called the Proto-Evangelium. The good news. The first good news. Satan, the one who took us down. The murder of humanity is defeated and destroyed. That's good news. But also in this, what we see is that the godly seed is wounded. There is, a, there is a lesson for you and me here, and that is this, that there will be blows, there will be blows and bruising from the serpent's attacks. There will be times that godly people are attacked, and there will be times that godly people are hurt. There will be times that godly people suffer. And he's saying we should expect that. It's all the way through the rest of the Bible as well. Jesus says it. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And Jesus, if you read it carefully in John 15, He's saying, the world will hate you because it hated me. The Apostle Peter writes to, to a suffering church. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as if it were something strange happening to you. You see, for, for us to live in times of peace, for us to live in a time of ease as believers where we are not persecuted, where we are not suffering, where we are not oppressed, where we are not prejudiced against, where we are not being beaten or imprisoned, where we have freedom to share our faith, and rather than being, being beat down, we might be rejected, we might be scorned, or we might just be dismissed. It is very rare in human history for godly people. We are in an unusual time. He says, it's not a strange thing if you're suffering this. It is the norm. Millions of our brothers and sisters, the majority of our brothers and sisters around the world today are in places where they do suffer, where there is a price to pay for being a follower of Jesus Christ. God, the godly seed are wounded. 
your flock, we need to understand that what that means is at times it will appear that the serpent, that Satan is winning. It may appear that way because of your personal situation and some difficulty in your life. It may appear that way because of personal suffering for your faith and persecution that you might suffer in your life. It might be not because of something personal, but because of the situation around you, as with many of our brothers and sisters. Or it might be because of just the whole situation in the world. But it'd be, it's very easy for any or all of us at any given time to wake up and to look at our life and look at the world around us and go, all is lost! The world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's all falling apart. Satan's winning. Right here, Genesis 3.15, when Satan first got what appeared to be the upper hand, the word is this, he will bruise the heel, but he's going to be crushed. He will not win. Satan loses. Lastly, in this little section of the strike, I want us to notice that the pronoun changes. The subject changes. He's been talking about the seed of the woman and it's expanded from, from the woman to her seed, which is all of these who are the followers of God. And then it shifts suddenly and it moves to a very singular he. And it takes it away from the Satan's seed and it takes it to Satan. And the fight gets very personal. And he says, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This, you see, is where this passage becomes Christmas. And this is where Christmas ties to this passage. For this is the very first place in the Scriptures where the promise of a Savior, a singular Savior, is given. There will be one who will come. There will be one who will come who will destroy Satan. There will be one who will come and make things right. It's right here in this little verse. Stuck in the middle of the curse on the very day, the darkest day of human history when paradise was lost and death began to rule. God tucked away the promise of the Savior. Isn't that marvelous? We, of course, know that this is pointing to Jesus. But the reality is that God only revealed His plan. Why here, it's very veiled. And He only reveals His plan little by little, bit by bit, over the millennia to come until Jesus comes. Adam and Eve understood from this little promise there's coming One who's going to rescue us. And I have a feeling when their first son was born, when they held that little baby in their arms, there was the thought and perhaps the discussion between them, I think He's the one. I think this is the seed that will save us. If that was their hopes, they were severely disappointed when that seed grew up and He came, slew, killed His brother Abel. As time moves on, the seed of man, the, the humanity grows more and more evil and wicked, increasingly so. 
up until the time where God destroys the world by a flood, rescuing only eight people in the ark, for there there were only eight righteous people, eight seed of the woman, eight godly seed on the planet. It looked like perhaps Satan might overwhelm the godly seed, but God saved the remnant. After the flood, as the generations came and went again, the world, the humanity became more increasingly wicked up until Babel. God brought another judgment of confusion of languages and dispersing the people, but there was always, and God has always preserved a remnant of godly people, of godly seed. Finally, some 2,000 years later, from the very first promise, From the very first Noel, God called a man to leave his homeland and to go to a land that He would show him. And God promised that He would give him a seed. And that seed would be the one who through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That man was Abraham. The promised seed, the rescuer, would be a descendant of Abraham. And that's what we studied the last 12 weeks or so. So we looked at Abraham. Just that one chapter. And then God says, that Abraham's son Isaac will from him will, through him will come the seed of promise and Isaac has two sons Jacob and Esau from him one of those two sons Jacob will be the seed of promise or the one through whom the promise will come Jacob has twelve sons. Those twelve sons become the twelve tribes of Israel, for Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Of those twelve tribes, God gives word that one of those, Judah, will be the one through whom the promise will come. The book of Genesis closes out. God will not give any more information about who the, this promised seed will be or through where he will, where he will come. Four hundred years the people are in Egypt as slaves and they grow into a mighty nation. They come out of there, they go into the land of Israel. Four hundred more years until the second king of Israel sits on the throne. And God says to King David, the promised seed will come through your and your line. Promised seed will be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Judah, and from the house of David. From the time of David until the close of the Old Testament, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Malachi, the prophets would speak and God gave many prophecies about the coming Messiah. And then, as Malachi closes, there are 400 years of silence. You see, I don't know if you can even just begin to get it. If I can just begin to get from this what it is to wait and to long for the Messiah. You see, because the wheels fell off, death came into the world and sickness and and war and, and all kinds of rotten stuff came into the world and people were longing for a Savior. 
for the One to come and make things right. Some 4,000 years of longing and waiting from the very first little promise in Genesis 3. Can you just feel a little of the expectation, the hope, or maybe the discouragement of many who thought, He's not coming. It's been too long. And then He came. One starry night. The angels showed up to a bunch of lowly shepherds. Do not fear, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, the promised One. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, and they were saying, Loosely translated. (laughs) Yes, good news, He came. The Messiah has come. It's so easy for us to look back 2,000 years and go, yeah, yeah, prophecies, yeah. We didn't have the 4,000 years of longing expectation waiting. Seed of a woman was born. Born of a virgin. Prophesied, God became man. And then the unthinkable, the seed of the serpent, put the seed of the woman to death. Again, on Friday, that Friday, it seemed like the ultimate victory just might have been Satan's. He killed the promised seed, the God-man, the hope for the rescue of humanity. He was killed. But remember, brothers and sisters, Satan cannot go in his scheming where God has not already allowed in his sovereignty. See, we already read the passages God had planned for Jesus to die, to die as our substitute, to pay the price for our sin. He's chosen before the foundations of the world. Sunday morning, the real victor walked out of the grave, alive from the dead. He wins. His resurrection from the dead sealed the victory over sin and over death and over Satan. And it was the crushing blow to the head of that serpent. To the head of Satan. The writer of Hebrews says, He, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the power of death and the power of Satan was destroyed and by His resurrection, His victory was assured and secured. And it raises a question. Because if all that is really true, then why, if Satan was crushed by Jesus, why is He still around today? Ah. The saga continues. See, God knows how to do a story better than George Lucas. The story isn't over. Why is there still suffering and evil? Why is there still murder and disease and death in this world today? Why is Satan still allowed to... Run around in this world if Jesus destroyed him. 
Well, if you read the rest of the book, what you realize is this. Jesus has destroyed Satan, but the sentence hasn't been enacted yet. But it will be. It's not going to be enacted until Jesus Christ returns and Satan will be judged. Which raises the question because a lot of us then will go, why in the world hasn't He done it yet? What's He waiting for? Is He waiting for another person to die of cancer and to suffer? Is He waiting for another mass murderer and bombing and all the horrible stuff that goes on? Why is He allowing that? The best answer I can give is the one that the Lord gives from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. Not like some people understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, when Jesus Christ returns, and when He executes the judgment that has already been rendered on Satan that he is defeated. When Satan is destroyed, Jesus will destroy not only Satan, but all of Satan's seed. And remember, all of humanity comes down to one of two seeds. The seed of the woman who is the, who is aligned with God, God's seed, or the seed of the serpent, who is Satan's seed. All of humanity is in one camp or the other. And from that moment that sin came into humanity, the default value is the seed of serpent, the seed of Satan. That is what we are all born into. And the bad news then is everyone is headed for the destiny of Satan. Except God sent the seed of the woman who bore the price to rescue people. And the way to not be in this family and to be in that family, it takes a new birth. Jesus said it so plainly in a passage in John chapter 3 as He was talking to a religious leader who had come to Him by night and He was beating around the bush to ask His question. just said, look, I tell you the truth. Nobody can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. You don't get to heaven. You don't see God unless you're born again. That's how you're born into God's family. That's how you get there. And this man, Nicodemus, goes, I, how do you get born again? I mean, you can't go back in your mother's womb and go through this whole thing. What do you mean, Jesus? And Jesus said, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't get this? Don't you see there's been this whole battle of seeds and you need a new birth? How do you do it? He explained it so clearly just a few verses later. Verse that most of you know, John 3.16. For God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, the seed of the woman who came, who died in our place, He gave His Son so that whoever believes on Him will not perish, 
but have everlasting life. Here's how you get born again. It's by believing in the Son, the one God sent as the sacrifice, as our substitute. And when we trust in Him, we believe in Him, the Bible says we are born again. We are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, out of the seed of Satan, into the seed of God's people, into His family. Is that good news? If you're here this morning and you've never heard this before, never understood it before, what you need to know is that God is saying that you need a Savior. He's provided a way. Trust in Jesus. He invites you today to trust in Him right now. Most of you who are here today say, I already know this. And I say, you still need to hear this message terribly. Because we need to remember that this is describing the way the world is and that most of the people in this world right now have never heard or they are not trusting in Jesus. And they are the seed of Satan. And they are headed for an awful eternity. This is the Word of Scripture. And why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He's giving one more year, one more month, one more week, one more day, one more hour for one more person to say, I need a Savior. Jesus, I'm trusting You. And He has left you and me here who are believers in Christ to be ambassadors. It's fine to go enjoy Star Wars. Brothers and sisters, what a travesty. What an awful thing that we have the greatest epic tale ever conceived in all of eternity. One that we will marvel at for the rest of eternity. One that the angels marvel at, Peter writes right now, going, huh? One the prophets long to look into and understand because they're going, huh? Because it's so amazing that God loved us that much that He sent the Son. So how can we keep quiet? We've got such good news. 